Yeah. And on top of that, you know, this is the beautiful thing about building your own company. You get to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the decisions we've made is like, look, both Damien and so my co-founder Damien and I have both run a bunch of companies before. This is the first one we've done together, but we agree on one thing, and that's that just because it worked previously, it doesn't mean we have to do it again. Yeah. Right? Or especially if something didn't work previously, maybe we should try something different. And I love the fact that we can experiment with doing things differently. And from our point of view as well, you know, we're coming at this from an environmental angle. And so we're kind of explicitly taking a triple bottom line approach. You know, we really believe in people, planet and profit in that order of importance. You know, we're not willing to sacrifice profit in order to screw over people. And we're not willing to, we're just not willing to do that. And in a, in a result, or as a result, you end up making decisions differently. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani, and my guest today is Haya Camps. Haya has written and published over 35 different books. He used to work for TechCrunch as a reporter. These days, he also trains founders and entrepreneurs on how to raise funding. Meanwhile, he is working on building a tech product which allows people to conduct remote events. So if you are a tech startup founder and have a remote team, or if you are a tech startup founder where you intend to raise funding, then this is the episode for you. Haya and I, we both discuss things such as how would you go about raising funding if you were just starting out now. So lean in and listen to this episode with Haya Camps. So welcome, Haya. It's great to have you here. I've been following your posts on um, online and I've been following Conf, your company, and having a look at that. And I'd love to know a bit more about what you are excited about and what you're working on these days. Awesome, Sam. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's fun to be on the podcast. So yeah, I'm... Uh... I have a very, very strange career uh, that spans all sorts of very weird kind of stepping stones along the way. Some of the highlights are I used to be a TV producer uh, in the UK and had a really good time with that. I was a policeman for a while of all the strange things to have done and kind of been in venture capital for a couple of years as well, kind of working on helping a large portfolio of mostly hardware startups trying to figure their, figure out how to spread the magic. These days, I do mostly two things. I am a uh, pitch coach, so I help f- uh, founders kind of build their uh, stories and storytelling to raise money from venture capitalists. And in addition to that, I'm the CEO of a company called Conf, that's K-O-N-F. And we're building kind of the future of what we want virtual events and conferences to be. Yep, yep, which is the ideal time right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we started it before uh, this pandemic hit and kind of we came at this from a environmental angle. Our thought was like, look, if there's, uh, there's, there's events happening everywhere mm. all the time, right? And a billion people travel every year to go to events. And we figured if we managed to build a platform that's good enough, so we take only 1% of that off the table, that has such an enormous impact on uh, carbon footprint and travel and events themselves are terribly wasteful. You know, all the disposable cups and all the sets that get built and torn down and thrown away and all that kind of stuff. And Don't get me wrong. I love a good in-person event, but I also think there is a lot of space for doing events that are virtual, either in between like uh, real life events or to hit a different audience. Ultimately, 
most events are being run by teams that that have a goal in mind, right? They have they have some money to invest and they have a goal in mind. So the return on investment is super important. And if you are trying to do, say, a um, customer event, say, say you run a software company and you want to do a event for all your customers, yeah. it is unlikely that you'll be able to fly people from 200 countries into this one place, right? It's expensive. Not everybody can get visas. Not everybody can get the time off, all that kind of stuff. And so we're kind of rethinking what a virtual event can be and how to really build really good events that are focused on how humans can connect with other humans. Yep, absolutely. Makes so much sense. So I have seen something very interesting. You know, earlier we were talking about about you know, the whole world and New Zealand and how. So what I have noticed here is that because we don't have the same type of lockdowns and things like that anymore, or for the last um, few months, people are allowed to have events. But after the very strict first lockdown we had, which was super effective, people got used to running events online that, that apart from sports, sports has gone back. Because of, you know, how do you play rugby on Zoom? Apart from esports, which has grown tremendously, what we I have seen is that all the events haven't come back, like as in the business events haven't come back. And all the small sort of networking events, conferences, smaller seminars under 500 people, they they just haven't um, come back. And I mentor at a couple of different universities in their entrepreneurship program as a as a coach and all that. And one interesting thing I saw that is that universities have got very flexible with allowing a hybrid model. So five people were there, say like five or eight students were there and then in the in real life, and then there's probably 30 students online and then So it was a hybrid live as well as online. And a lot of companies, universities are exploring these sort of models that so all the students don't have to travel in from nearby towns or cities or or all that. And for whoever is there, yes, they can be there in in person. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of growth and a lot of exciting things happening in, in that space. And I think the fun thing is there was already a lot of that that was happening, I think. You know, we already saw an uptick of people doing more things virtually and all that kind of thing. And there was always a little bit of pushback for like people were like, well, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if I want to sit at home and do video and that kind of stuff. And I think what we've had is in the first kind of six months of the pandemic, we had like five years worth of evolution. Everybody yes. went and upgraded their home internets. They figured out how to do video. They... They, they did all the bits they needed to do in order to be able to do their, their calls in peace at home. You know, Before the pandemic, there was three sets of people who refused to do a video with me. One was my lawyer. He said, it's not secure enough. I refuse to do it. You have to drive down here to Palo Alto, which is a 45-minute drive. I mean, they have a lovely barista. They make fantastic coffee. But I don't want to drive for 45 minutes to talk to my lawyer for 20 minutes. You know, It doesn't matter how nice their coffee is. If I want coffee, I have a coffee shop. If I want to go see my lawyer, I want to go see my lawyer. The other one was my um, accountant, right? They wanted to point at the paperwork and say, you've made a mistake here, fix it. And and they wanted me in the office to do that. And the final person, of course, was my my therapist, who just turned out to be a complete Luddite. They just didn't understand technology, didn't want to understand technology, and just didn't want anything to do with it. But of Mm. course, when their uh, livelihoods were were at risk, all three of them figured it out very quickly. Because, you know, if they 
refused to see you over Zoom, they just wouldn't have any business. And now when we finally go back to being able to meet in person, I'm never driving down to my lawyer's office again. You know, it's just not going to happen. They figured out Zoom now, they can figure out Zoom in the future. And I think a lot of meetings where you normally had to drive, I think we've started to figure it out. We figured out how to do meetings with Zoom, with other tools. And I think that's a really powerful change that we will we won't really understand the full impact of that until maybe a couple of years from now when when in theory it is possible to meet in person again but seeing how many of those meetings stay online is going to be really interesting yes the other interesting thing is that there can be a much higher productivity in a, like online setting rather than in person setting so yep. as as zoom develops as you can imagine the number of SaaS product opportunities that exist. Just like your accountant, you could be showing on the Zoom next to you. You could have a plugin or an app that could be showing, okay, sign here and you do that. And, and it's all recorded. And eventually there will be more and more analytics that will go with video that will be doing eye tracking as if you are paying attention or not. One yeah. of the common thing that I have seen with universities is that not all the students having their camera on so teachers don't really know if the students are even engaged or or they are just doing their own thing doing cooking it's running in the background and and that has been one of the challenges but I'm sure that will be figured out as time goes on yeah and I think the other interesting thing actually is maybe maybe people deserve to be a choice right if you go to university especially at university and college level if you pay attention or not you're kind of screwing yourself over if you, if yeah. you don't. Right. And so yeah. if you want to turn your video off and go and cook or, or do laundry, you know, the college tutor gets paid the same and it's, you're kind yeah. of shooting yourself in the foot with your, with the learning that's not happening. And I wonder whether there's a lot more of that where, you know, people are actually given the option to have a little bit more choice over what part of the meeting they attended. I've sat in yeah. so many meetings where there's like 10, 15 people where I didn't really need to be there. It's helpful if I like listen with half an ear in case I need to pay attention. But a Absolutely. lot of the time it's actually really helpful to just turn my video off and maybe I can do something else or maybe I can, I can still pay attention. Maybe I can fold laundry, maybe whatever, right? And if my attention is needed, I'm right there. I've, I've paid attention. I know the context. I can be productive. But yeah. I think there's something to be said for not wasting people's time with, especially in-person meetings, but also like uh, you just have a lot more abilities to kind of multitask or like tune in or tune out depending on where you're needed in a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Going back to your entrepreneurship journey, how did you um, land up in, in this, like as in going from working for police to to something like this. It's a, it's a very, very different career pathway. Yeah. So I've always been an extraordinarily curious person. And uh, my first startup was probably back in 2010, I think. I did a hardware startup and I built that completely from the ground up and had a lot of really good experiences with that. And that was kind of the beginning of my uh, entrepreneurial journey. Before that, I'd written a bunch of books about uh, photography, actually. I've written like 15 books about photography. So I'm like an above average photography nerd. But as part of that, I did a lot of speaking at events and stuff. So I was kind of on the speaking circuit. I ran workshops and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been really involved with events and seminars and keynotes and all that kind of stuff. 
I did a couple of more companies. I worked at TechCrunch for a couple of years as a writer and ended up being pretty involved with TechCrunch Disrupt. So I saw that event kind of uh, yeah. from behind the, behind the scenes. I was on stage moderating stuff. I was in the audience observing and all that kind of thing. And so I've seen the event industry from many different angles. Yeah. And when I kind of started thinking about what I wanted to do next, I was like, okay, I... This was kind of against the backdrop of, of, I mean, I live in the US, I'm not a huge fan of the administration, but in a general sense, I think one of the most terrifying thing the current administration did was to basically completely dismantle the EPA. You know, there's basically no environmental protection left in the US. Hmm. And it is terrifying to me because, I mean, everything else you can kind of undo, but you can't destroy the planet and then undo it, right? That's kind of a one-way street. And so my my thought pattern was like, okay, what can I do as one person? What can I do that that is has a massive positive impact on the environment? But I'm only one dude, right? I can go out in in rivers and kind of pick litter out of rivers, but yeah. that doesn't scale. And as an entrepreneur, I like to do stuff that that scales. And so when my co-founder Damien came to me and said, "Hey, I've started uh, building this product. It's kind of the the main idea is to make sure that you know people don't have to travel to events. Do you want to help me build this thing?" I was like, "You know what? There's a lot of really good things about this, both in terms of my kind of entrepreneurship journey, my experience with events, and all that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of product stuff in my time, and I was like, yeah, actually, this feels like something that is that that." takes a lot of my interests and experience and kind of puts it in a big pile where I can, <clears throat> where I can build something. Yep. Yep. No, that's great. And then how did you get started? Did you first build a team? Did you build an MVP? What happened next? Yeah. So Damien has done a bunch of companies before. He's a very talented technologist and exited a couple of companies and used to run a digital agency and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he actually did an interesting thing with this one was, was that we started building a tech team in Egypt. And now we have a team of four women that are coders that work with us, which is okay. extraordinarily rare for, for Egypt in general. And they're, they're, top class or credible coders. It's so much fun to work with, with them and the rest of the team. And so, yeah, we basically just put together like, a, okay, what does an MVP look like? What do we need to do in, 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 in terms to get it in front of customers? Right. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not tricking myself here. I know that we're going into an extraordinarily uh, competitive market. You yes. know, there's, there's competitors out there that are worth billions of, uh, dollars, you know, WebEx fixed this, uh, a core part of this problem back in the nineties, right? So this is yes. not a new problem even. And so we're going into a, a market that is crowded, has some really big, well-established incumbents in it and other stuff happening as well. Yeah. But we were like, okay, what do we need to build in order to start getting our product in front of customers? And so we spent, I think we went less than five months from writing the first line of code to running the first event on the platform. And started getting feedback, right? Started getting like, okay, this doesn't work. We don't like that. This doesn't make sense. And over time, started doing bunches and bunches of changes. And in the process, of course, did a, did a ton of customer interviews. So I've done probably about 50 or 60 customer interviews with people who run events as agencies, who are like event planners, digital event experts, event producers, all that kind of stuff, just yeah. to listen. And it's really just a case of asking the question, okay, how do you do what you want to do? What do you wish you could do? And what is good and bad about your current solution? Those are the only questions. And then the rest of my job is just to sit around and listen, take notes. And so you start getting a really good picture of what is needed out in the, in the, in the space. 
Because the worst thing you could possibly do is to build the same product that is already out there, right? Yes. You can't take on Apple by 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 making everything Apple makes. The only yes. way to take on Apple is to take a tiny little slice of the market that they haven't figured out yet. Yeah. And so that's essentially what we're doing. We found a gap in the market and we're really kind of building a product that that fills that gap really well. And the cool thing is we have a bunch of early customers that are coming to us that are like, okay, we really like what you're doing. We want to run the product on the platform, run the events on your platform uh, because we do stuff a little bit differently. Now it helps that we're a young company and they get lots of hands-on attention and all that sort of stuff, you know, because as a small company, we can, we can compete on that. Again, that doesn't scale, but the great thing about MVPs is not everything has to scale. Exactly. Um, as long as you learn, <laughs> yes. that's kind of the key thing. Yeah, yeah. And in early days, you're still discovering the, the exact sort of product market fit and all that and 100%. what people use and all that. How are you funding all your development, your time, your CTO's time, all that? Have you yeah. funding or is it bootstrapped? So we mostly self-funded. So my co-founder, yes. as I mentioned, has a bunch of past companies. So he actually funded the, the development team for a while. Yes. We raised some angel money. In fact, we're still raising that round now raising about 300k but we had a really positive surprise early on which was we launched officially in july yes. uh, in august we ran at break even and the month after we actually drew made a profit wow. so with with a team of nine actually as per tomorrow we're 10 yes. or as per monday we're 10 so there's a pretty big team we have a pretty big like uh, relatively mature platform running and that kind of stuff yes. but we're creating so much value for our uh, customers that they're happy to pay. And so as a result, we're actually running really well there. So now we kind of had this big philosophical choice. Do we want to raise venture and kind of go hell for leather? Or yes. do we take more of a base camp approach and say, you know what, let's grow slowly, steadily, evenly, and, you know, just execute 10% better yeah. every month and yeah. let the cum cumulative effect of that build a very successful company. So we're kind of in the middle of trying to figure that part out. But yes. yeah, we're kind of do, just doing a rolling close on an angel round. And that seems to be plenty for us for now. Well, that's great. That's great to hear, especially having and now outsource or remote teams are so widely accepted all around the world. Yeah. You know, no one looks looks at it as any less. In fact, it's seen as the smarter option, like, you know, Two years ago, you said that, oh, my team is in Egypt. Angels or VCs won't look at it as that favorably, but now well, there is no Well, you change. would be surprised, actually. We've had a number of people tell us that they would much rather we put a whole team in San Francisco. Really? And I'm like, yeah. That's uh, crazy. Inclu including some very well-known venture investors and that kind of stuff. Their argument is yeah. just like, look, if you need more money to hire better people, raise more money. Yeah, And I can see where that advice is coming from, but it's also a little bit self-serving, right? In, yeah. order, to, in order to do that, <laughs> we have to raise more money from the people who are giving us the advice, which is raise more money. And in the process, we have to give up more of our company. Now, I, I don't doubt for a, for a moment that there's a lot of very, very talented coders in Boston and in the Bay Area. I mean, that's why I moved here, right? I, I'm a startup nerd. I love living in the Bay Area and I love being surrounded by this. An ecosystem, yeah. Yeah, all the, and the ecosystem thing, you, you can't underplay. You know, it's yeah. actually very, even during the pandemic, it's very helpful to be able to say that I'm here. Where are you calling from? Yes. Oakland. I go, oh, yeah. yeah. And on top of that, you know, this is the beautiful thing about building your own company. You get to make these decisions. Yes. And I think one of the decisions we've made is like, look, both Damien, so my co-founder Damien and I have both run a bunch of companies before. This is the first one we've done together, but we agree on one thing. And that's that 
just because it worked previously, it doesn't mean we have to do it again. Yeah. Right. Or especially if something didn't work previously, maybe we should try something different. And I love the fact that we can experiment with doing things differently. And from our point of view as well, you know, we're coming at this from an environmental angle. And so we're kind of explicitly taking a triple bottom line approach. You know, we really believe in people, planet, and profit in that order of importance. You know, we're not willing to sacrifice profit in order to screw over people. And we're not willing to, we're just not willing to do that. And in a, in a result, or as a result, you end up making decisions differently. And we actually had a, a, like a big kind of meeting on, on yesterday with, with the entire team and basically talked about why is this company different and why is that important to us? And it turns out that the company almost has a sort of a personality at this point, right? As a company that is distinct from mine and from Damien's. And I really like that. It means that we have the possibility to build something that is bigger than us and that can outgrow us. Yeah, yeah, that is that is so true. It is so subtle, but it is so, so true that uh, you have a different sort of culture and how you work. Damien has different, your developers have different. And all together, you are creating something that is completely unique and different to conf. Yep. Makes yeah, so much sense. Yep. And time will tell if it works, right? We're doing a bunch of experiments, but it's like any MVP. You try yeah. it. If it doesn't work, you try something else. Doesn't exactly. work, try something else. Keep keep iterating until, well, either you run out of money or it works. Yeah. But I think there's something really fun about giving yourself the permission to run those experiments and and, and learn something about yourself, your team, the space you're in. Etc. Very, very true. One of the other things that you do is help other founders or train them to raise money. Can you tell me a bit more about how that got started and your experience with raising money and all that? So I was was at the, the venture capital firm for a couple of years as a director of portfolio. And one of my favorite things about that job was helping the founders who were going on to raise their next round of money, help them do storytelling, right? I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of theater. I've done a lot of kind of storytelling stuff over the years. And it turns out, you know, telling your pitch is just another type of storytelling. So you have to remember who your audience is. It's, It's a bunch of VCs. What are they interested in? right? It turns out a lot of founders spend so much time talking about their product, but realistically, the VC just doesn't give a crap what your product is. They care that you pour $10 in the top, you get $15 at the bottom, right? Yeah. And if you found a repeatable business model for that, then that basically means go and raise $100 million, pour $100 million in the top, $150 million comes at the bottom, put $150 million in the top, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's just think working with people to to help them understand how their message lands for a VC is kind of where I found my superpower because I've been a journalist. I have a journalism degree. I've done a lot of writing, done a lot of storytelling, done a lot of that piece of it. So the conveyance of information is one of my things. I've been in VC, so I know how that works from the inside. And I've been an entrepreneur many times. So I kind of took all those pieces and clumped them together. And so when I left this venture capital firm, I started blogging about fundraising and I started building the the kind of a program for how to actually uh, do a, a fundraising coaching thing. Yes. And the blog posts I started writing actually ended up putting together and pitched to a publisher and it's now a published book. It's called Pitch Perfect. It's available in all good bookstores and many bad bookstores. <laughs> and basically it's it's kind of me taking everything I know about how to weave a good a narrative for fundraising, and I put it in a book. And the main reason for the book actually was that I had so many inquiries, I couldn't, 
I couldn't work with everybody. And then especially when I ended up starting this new company, you know, I just didn't have time to work with clients and I didn't have time to pitch to clients. And so I, I was like, okay, here's the book, read that. And then once, you, once you're done with that, if you still want to work with me, now you know what kind of my general thinking is, we can do something. But now I only work with two clients a month. And yeah. it means that I spend per month, I spend about 10 hours working with clients. And that is that feels really good to me. It means that I can keep my finger on the pulse. I can work with with, uh, with startups. I love that energy, you know, and it's, yes. it's really helpful to be able to kind of submerge myself in somebody else's problem for a couple of hours. <laughs> so I don't have to think about my own. And then when I'm done with that, I go back to my own startup, which is of course has its own challenges and stuff. Absolutely. Can I put you on spot and give you like a scenario or like, go for it. Say, say, for example, if it's uh, because I've worked in esports before and in a funded startup and spent time in Bay Area and all that. So say it's an esports startup founder and mm-hmm. the founder is pitching to, to government backed or sovereign funds or things like that, where the, the age of the investor and how they think is, is a lot older, like, you know, they're in their 50s, 60s, they want to, they, all of them, you know, they realize that they need to get into tech, they need to get into esports, they need to get into fintech, blockchain, all those things they yeah. realize, and they all want to get in, but they don't understand the space at all. How would a founder pitch to them? Or how would the founder talk to them? That is a really good question. The way I would approach that is to think about what is their language? What do they care about, right? And especially people running uh, things like sovereign wealth funds and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. they will probably be extremely capable and very, very uh, experienced in just reading balance sheets and, and getting like yes. the financial side of it together, right? Yeah. And so the way I would present it is to say, look, Sam, what if I had a way to pitch something to you where it's growing 15% week on week, the revenue is going up all the time, we have a solid product, and this is a product that's wanted by 2 billion people around the world. If I had something like that, would you be interested? Watch them lean in, right? And then once they do that, you go, okay, well, what we're actually talking about here is, you know, you do a little bit of research, you find out what their favorite team is, you say, okay, it's like Man United, except online, uh, right? Some of these people are are revered. You know, whenever they go live on YouTube, they have a hundred thousand people watching and, you know, they make a ton of money. Now in this space, we are building a company that is, and then you kind of talk them through the metrics, right? Talk to the KPI, talk through your growth, talk through your revenue, talk through the product and gaming or esports. you don't even really have to mention it. Towards the end, you can get more into the detail for how, what your go-to-market is. And there you start talking a little bit about it. And you talk about specifically what your product does because, you know, they do need to understand that. But the, the, way, the way to their hearts is through the, it's, it's through the spreadsheet. It's just saying, look, yeah. this is what we've done so far. Of course, that assumes that you already have a little bit of traction and that you have some revenue to show. But it's, you can tell some really compelling stories where the actual product itself is almost a footnote. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And another one is just a a very early stage, just someone who's got MVP, not enough traction, pitching to angels because not VCs, angels. Angels are the first, you know, first people that these um, really early stage founders go to. What should they be doing? Yeah, no, for angels are really interesting. I I, I always like to refer to it as, as the three Fs. It's friends, families, and fools. 
But you're talking about in, in the angel space, it's really helpful to be able to find people who are specifically interested in your space. So if you're building something yeah. that is in industrial automation, do yeah. your research, find out who made a lot of mo- money in, in, in industrial automation and is writing angel checks. Or if mm-hmm. you're doing something in esports, find somebody who made a lot of money, you know, building Alienware and selling it to Dell or something yeah. like that, right? Where do you find a synergy where the angel themselves has a affinity for the for the market or for the space or for you personally? Because you're not going to be able to sell based on traction because you don't have any, No, right? there's no traction for this exactly. early stage entrepreneurs. But you're selling the dream. You're selling yes. the, the, the thing you really, really care about. So if I knew, for example, that this wonderful guy, Sam, who's built this company called Build My MVP, you know, he's exited several companies and I'm building a company that is to, something to do with esports, go talk to him. You know, maybe you don't want to invest, but you almost certainly know other people in the space who are willing, who are writing angel checks in that space. And so just networking and working your way through those loops is extremely effective for, for doing angel investing. And so I think the most important ones are people who are close to you, right? Friends who uh, were early at Facebook, Google, et cetera. So they know tech and they have money. That's a good place yeah. to start. Uh, family, like if you have a rich uncle somewhere who might be willing to invest, that's a really good place to start. But once you've kind of uh, exhausted those avenues, it's time to start thinking smart. So it's like, okay, strategically, who would I love on my board? Or strategically, whose brain would I like to pitch, uh, uh, pick to yes. get all this thing? So if you're building like a really ambitious e-commerce startup that is really focused on, on customer service, go and read Delivering Happiness. Go and f- get yourself in front of Tony, uh, who founded Zappos, who yes. like famously cared om- almost only about customer service and said, look... Mm-hmm. We're using your playbook. We're doing something really interesting. We're not selling shoes. We're selling, I don't know, beer fridges, but we're following the same playbook. We'd love for you to invest. And now you have a personal angle in and you usually are able to get the conversation going at least. And my top tip always is to make sure to ask the question at the end of the conversation, like who else should I be talking to and hold them to it, right? So say, can you think of two people I should talk to? Yes. And usually at the top of their head, they have some some friends or some other investors or somebody who helped them out once or somebody like to co-invest with. Yes. And then once they give you the names, would you mind introducing me? Right. Really simple, really straightforward. But that's a really effective way of getting uh, the angel round done and closed. Yeah, that is excellent usable advice because a lot of the people who listen to this are early stage founders. So yep. love love the advice. What has been the most challenging part of of your entrepreneurship journey or or even running comp or anything Oof. that you've done? I'm a profoundly, profoundly impatient person. And I think my biggest lesson is that stuff takes time, right? Yeah. Even at a startup that is moving at breakneck speed, mm-hmm. stuff takes time. Development takes time. Finding customer takes time. Developing your language, developing your marketing, everything just takes time. Yes. And, you know, as, as a founder, you can't work 20 hours a day and be effective. I've done that in previous startups and it just didn't work. In the end, what I learned is that I, am, I can work for about six to eight hours a day, no problem. Yes. I'm productive, like really productive, maybe three hours. Yeah. And so what I've learned is to be like super protective of those three hours. I block it out mm-hmm. of my calendar. I have regular blocks that is like outbound sales or product or something like that. And my team knows if they need us, if they need that slot, everybody has right uh, access to my calendar so they can move the slot, but they, they don't get to overwrite it. If there isn't space in the day, 
pick a different day. Yeah. And that's super important to me because if I don't get that productive time in, I just get so frustrated because it feels like I'm standing still. And the other big tip I have is to write a monthly update to your investors, to your mentors, to your staff, because it turns out, I've done that with all, all of my startups so far. It turns out just writing a monthly update and tracking some metrics, you remember how much actually changes. It feels like an eternity passes every time I do a monthly update. I'm looking at my calendar now. We're on the 15th, right? It feels like forever since I did an update. It's only two weeks ago. And it's just a really healthy reminder to yourself that you are living in a world where things move so quickly that out in the real world, you know, it can take months to build a bridge. Yes. You, you don't have to do everything on the same day or everything at the same time. And that's been the hardest thing for me because every time I'm in entrepreneur world, I'm like, ah, everything's going so slowly. But then I look at the numbers and, you know, we're like massively exactly growing right. and sales are going up and product is doing fantastic and our, everything is just moving in the right direction. Yeah. And I just kind of have to look in a mirror and go, Haya, you're an impatient son of a bitch, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's always hard for me. But I think it's just, I think that's true for many entrepreneurs, right? We are so hungry. We want to get stuff done. And it's just, just hard to kind of take yeah. a breath and calm down and be present. Practical question. I've, yeah. I've been following your Medium blogs and things like that, where you write on Medium. With these monthly updates, do you do like a MailChimp type newsletter, ConvertKit or whatever you might be using? Or do you do it on Medium, LinkedIn, Substack? What what do you use? What's your Yeah, good question. Choice? I don't like putting my monthly updates publicly. I want to have a little bit of control over who sees them. Now, of course, people yes. can forward emails and you don't have any real control. But I also often use it as an excuse to, so I have a bunch of uh, investors that want to invest, but in a future round, right? They want to keep an yes. eye on how we're growing, how we're developing, you know, yeah. and the funny thing is they do read the emails. So I use our uh, CMS system to send out those emails. So it's like comes personally from me. It is slightly personalized. And for the most high end investors, I actually write a personal little note as well. Hey, I hope your dog's doing well or whatever, you know, you put yeah. something in that, that, that makes it personal. And, you know, I, I spent quite a lot of time. I think I spent a day a month just putting this, like pulling all the data in, writing the update, writing the like little personalized notes and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's worth doing because it is what my one day a, uh, a month where I can see if we're, how are we doing compared to targets? How is my yeah. vision coming together? Are we still on mission? You know, how are we doing that? And of course, it's an excuse to email people. So I have one or two people on that newsletter who are people I know I want to hire in the future. They turn me down, but I'm not letting that go that easy, right? <laughs> so every month I send them an update. Hey, I'm still interested in hiring you, but for now, here's our update. I hope you're doing well, right? Or for angel investors, hey, I haven't heard from you in a few weeks. I hope everything is well. You know, we still have a little bit of space left in the round. Could you, do you want to invest? And the, yeah. the fact that the month that you do a monthly update and people know that, it's just an excuse to email people. And I feel like it's a really helpful way of, of, of just pacing, pacing those updates and, and keeping people in the loop. That is a fantastic idea for any founder out there listening. And if you want to do a round in future, start your monthly updates. I started them two week, two months ago on the product that I'm building on the side as a fun project. And I've just started doing them on Medium. And 
just on the product that all these things we added last month, just to see the progress, as you say, because that is another hallmark trait of entrepreneurs that, you know, we are impatient. We want things done. We want them done fast, especially in the yep. tech startup space. But then when you look back at the month and wow, you've achieved like all these like 12 different things you built <laughs> for your product. So it, it's, it's really, really good to see. So before we go, I have just one or two last questions. And that is, do you have a ask for any audience? Are you looking for anything? Oh, well, I mean, we are still uh, raising money. So if somebody is curious about investing in an early stage event startup, then come and find me. But I think actually... I don't have a specific ask beyond inviting people to think about why they run businesses. It's something I've kind of spent a lot of time thinking about recently. It's like, ultimately, everybody does stuff for their own happiness, right? I do stuff for my, for my contentment, for that of my family, for my friends and all that kind of stuff. And it feels weird to me that when you go and work at a business, suddenly that those 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 values go out the window right now suddenly you're just trying to produce as much, uh, as much money as possible or whatever your uh, metric is and i invite people to think about it, and especially if you're an entrepreneur yourself because that is one of the easiest opportunities to make those changes like okay why are you doing this business what is important about this to you and does it does the business like if you think about the business as a person if it has a personality does its personality reflect your values and if the answer is no, fix it. And if the answer is yes, awesome. Well done. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And if you had unlimited time, resources, and money, what would you build or what would you work on? Oh, I would probably plow all my every living minute and every dollar into ocean conservation. I'm a very avid scuba diver. I love, I'm a dive master. I've done a lot of diving. I love the Great Barrier Reef. I love diving around um, everywhere. And a lot of those spaces just are disappearing. And if I had unlimited resources, I think I would fund a bunch of research and spend as much time as I can underwater to try and find out what I can do to help. Oh, that's excellent. I will put all your links, your Medium, LinkedIn, Twitter, everywhere, wherever you are present underneath in the show notes or wherever this goes up on Instagram, LinkedIn, or any any social media everywhere. So thank you so much for your time. And I wish you best of luck for all your endeavors and all your projects. Thank you so much, Sam. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.